well. If you have any questions about the church, um, we are going through the book of Judges. So thanks, especially for coming back. Um, the book of Judges can be intimidating. It can be a, a difficult book. It can be challenging. And it's not the first thing you think of when you're like, I can't wait to dive into the book of Judges. But you know what? Actually, I can't wait to dive into the book of Judges. And I'm glad you're here to dive into God's word with us. So turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We'll be reading verses 7 through 11. Unlike last week, not as large of a passage, it's a smaller passage. Next week will be in verses 12 to 31. And uh, for all the kids, you get to hear about Ehud, and you can ask your parents what that's all about. Um, this week is a little prep for that, but for now we'll be in Judges 3, 7 to 11. This is God's holy word for his people. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishetham, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishetham eight years. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, and the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Let's pray. God, we, we need you. Each and every day, Lord, we need you each and every Sunday. We need you each time we encounter your word because, Lord, these words are written by your Holy Spirit as your Holy Spirit empowered people to write them. But, Lord, sometimes it's, it's hard for us to see. So, Lord, I just pray that you would open up our eyes to see what you have for us in your word, that you would enliven our minds, that you would open our ears so we can hear, Lord, and, and Lord, make our hearts tender towards you. Father, would you enable us by your Spirit to respond? Would you enable all of this... And Lord, would you enable me to preach your word by your spirit? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my kids and I, we like to go hunt geocaches. And in case you don't know what a geocache is, it's, it's kind of what it sounds like. This little cache, it's, it's sometimes as big as like an a ammo box and sometimes really teeny. And in these geocaches, sometimes they'll have treats or prizes or some kind of surprise in them. And, and for the really small ones, they'll have a little scroll rolled up where you can sign your name, your date, and, and how you found it or whatever you want to put on there. And you put it back into it. But there's some kind of joy in, in, the, in the process of finding them. You know, you download this app and you look for the GPS coordinates and you try to find it. And, and sometimes they're really, they're, they're hidden really remote areas and other times they're in plain sight. And, and actually, I think those are kind of even more fun to find because the ones in plain sight, other people just pass by never seeing them. There's, there's a, a few downtown in Greenville and there's one that's very difficult to find, and, and, uh, and maybe after this you'll probably go and find it and you'll say it wasn't that hard, but um, it, it's difficult to find because it's hidden right in plain sight. It's hidden on one of the bridges downtown, one of the pedestrian bridges, and it's painted the exact same color as the bridge, and it looks like a piece of the bridge hardware. And so people pass by this all the time. My son and I, when we first found it, it took us like 45 minutes, and then we realized, oh my goodness, it's right here, and it was right here all along. We walked by it like six or seven times. We didn't think much of it. It was, it was small. It was nondescript. It blended in. 
And we really didn't notice the treasure that it had within. Sometimes when we encounter scripture, it can be like that. We can, we can go by small portions of scripture and we cannot think much of them. This passage is one of those. It's seemingly plain. It's seemingly simple. It doesn't contain what doesn't seem like it contains a whole lot. But it really does. It's got some treasure inside that God has for us to see. It gives us a bare-bones account of things, if you will. There's, this doesn't have any dashing accounts of heroism. This is Nobody's killing anybody with the, the bone of a donkey. You know, nobody's doing horrible things or incredible things, it seems. It doesn't include a lot of fascinating detail. It's relatively plain. And, and you have to wonder, God, why did you put this scripture here? You see, um, the book of Judges is not just history. It's historically accurate, but it's not written to be history. It's written to show through history how God is at work and how God relates to his people to show us something about ourselves and to show us something about him. In this whole passage, if you're a careful observer, if you don't just walk by it quickly... But you find the passage, you open it up, you discover what's inside. What, what you're going to discover is, is the first thing you notice is that this passage is really not about Othniel, it's all about God. There's just five verses here. And in these five verses we see Yahweh, God's covenant name that he gave to Israel to know him by. His unique name, his name that's, that's vested with all kinds of meaning. God gives his covenant name and we see that it's given seven times directly in this passage alone. In five verses, the name of Yahweh, where we see in capital in, in the English Bible, by the way, when you see the all capital Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps, that's the English translation way of pointing to God's covenant name, Yahweh. And so we see that seven times Yahweh's name is put forth. And, and what's the author doing here? The author is trying to show us this, this big idea throughout the passage. He, he, he shows us Othniel, he shows us a deliverer, he shows us the people in need, but what he's really trying to show us is that God is the one who mercifully delivers his people and he gives them rest in his deliverer. God is the one who mercifully delivers his people and you might be surprised how he does that, but he mercifully delivers his people and he gives them rest in his deliverer. That's the overarching theme, really, of the passage. And we, and we see that, that God's deliverance from a problem that, that his people created. His people got themselves into trouble on their own, and isn't that true for us? We so often get ourselves into trouble, right? And you wonder, like, hey, I don't really feel like I deserve help here. I don't feel like I deserve aid because I've gotten myself into trouble. I know better. God's people knew better. They got themselves into trouble in the first place. And so really the first thing they need to be delivered from is themselves. Primarily God's people need to be delivered from themselves, from trusting themselves, from going their own way. And isn't that true for us most of the time? You know, I think often the biggest enemy I face is myself at times. They needed to be delivered from their own sin, from their idolatry that had led them away astray to false gods. And here the author, he gives us a glimpse of how that deliverance came about and then he immediately draws our attention to the fact that God's people become enslaved to sin when they forget God. That's how it happens. That's, that's why we need deliverance is because God's people become enslaved to sin when they forget God. It says, after the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, they forgot 
the Lord their God. That's where it all began. They forgot the Lord their God. So what does it mean to forget? Well, it means to, to have something out of our minds, to, to, to no longer remember, but I don't think this is talking about an accidental remembering because this is an active verb here. So they, they're, they're not remembering, they're actively forgetting. When I was younger, I would get in trouble at times because my, my parents, they would give me some kind of command. They would tell me to do something or tell me not to do something. And then I would get busy and I would go and do that thing with this little nagging in the back of my head, but kind of wanted to do that anyway, and so I did it. And then my parents would come to me and they'd say, hey, why did you do that thing? Or why, why didn't you do what I told you to do? You didn't do the dishes, but we told you to do the dishes when we, when we left. And, and here they're not done. Why not? And I would say, I forgot. And my parents would say, too bad, you're still getting a consequence because you didn't choose to remember. Now, were they just being unusually harsh? No, not, not really. There, there might be times where I legitimately forgot, but they were really rare. I, I didn't forget, I forget accidentally. I forgot because I didn't pay attention. I forgot because I didn't make an effort, effort to remember I heard instruction, but it wasn't important enough for me to remember it. It wasn't important enough for me to think, wait a minute, my parents are telling me this, and there will be consequences if I don't do this, so I need to pay attention. I need to remember. My, my thoughts weren't on their words. Their words were not important to me. Their instructions were not important to me. I didn't have an appropriate reverence for their instruction. That's kind of what we're seeing here. They failed to remember. They forgot. They didn't intentionally remember God's words. Now you say, well, well how could they be expected to? Well, because actually God warned them about that. And God warns us about this. That's why he has passages like this for us. He, he wants us to remember his words because through his words we have life. And so in Deuteronomy 4, God commissioned the people through Moses back in Deuteronomy 4. I'm going to read you two larger passages of Scripture. Because I want you to see God's careful instruction because he knows our temptation. He knows the people's temptation to forget. And so he says, And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules I'm teaching you and do them that you may live. Oh, so what's God's purpose of giving commands? It's so that we might live. He said that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the Father, is giving you. So he wants good for his people. So he says, don't forget. I want you to listen. Now he says, don't add to the words I command you, don't take from it, that you might keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. Your eyes have seen what the Lord God did. The Lord God, your God, destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast the Lord God are alive today. Oh, I just read that. Sorry about that. See, I've taught your statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. He has good intentions here. He says, keep them and do them. For that will be wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, unless they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Now skip down to, to verse 23. 
the next passage, it says, Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image. And he goes on to tell them at the end of that passage, in verse 31, he says, For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So he tells the people time after time, don't forget, here's the instructions. I have good intentions for you. Remember my instructions because that's how I'm going to bless you. That's how I'm going to take you into the promised land. That's how you're going to live, find life. And he tells them, don't forget, don't forget. Take care that you don't forget. And at the end, knowing that they'll forget, he says, oh, the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you. He won't forget. Even when you forget, he will not forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. But what do we find here in our passage in Judges? They forgot because they didn't think God's instructions to them were important. They didn't think they mattered. They skimmed over them. They, they were self-sufficient. They were ungrateful. And because of that, they, they went and served the Baal and the Asherahs. And, and they replaced the God of creation with a seemingly more present manifestation, a, a more present manifestation the gods of fertility of the Canaanites around them. The people who were once slaves in Egypt, they cried out to God and God delivered them. Now it says they served or they became servants of or slaves of the Baals and the Asherahs. How, how did they get there? How did they become enslaved to false gods? They became enslaved to false gods by forgetting and by going after idolatry. You know, we forget what God has done, we forget his goodness. That's why we need to get together every Sunday. So we get together during midweek. We, we don't want to forget the goodness of the Lord because we, we are prone to forget. When we forget God's goodness, we forget his mercy, we forget his kindness, his provision, sacrificial provision for us, we forget his love for us, and it fails to penetrate our hearts. That's why each and every day where we encourage a remembrance every day, be in God's word every day. Not, not out of some duty, not out of some obligation because um, if you do this, God will be pleased with you. But no, we need to be regularly in God's word, in God's word daily so we don't forget. We don't forget him. We don't forget his love. We don't forget his grace. We don't forget his goodness to us. Because when we forget, we're going to easily go astray after other things. We forget God's character we're more easily going to begin to believe wrong things about God, wrong things about ourselves. We forget his word, we're going to easily be tempted, easily go astray. If we're not careful to remember God's words, we're going to, we're going to easily drift. And, and as a church, we want to pay attention, we want to not forget. And so we, we have goals that we try to, to bring up each and every year. We, we come up with, okay, where's God leading us? How can we keep his words before us? How can we keep his principles before us? How can we remember him? And so this year, for instance, we have three different goals in the church. And, and one of those is just to pray each and every week, just at least pray once a week for the Holy Spirit to be at work in us and in the church and for the gifts of the Spirit to be evident. Why? Because we want to receive afresh from the Lord. And, and we want to pray each and every week so that we don't forget that we need the Spirit because the Spirit's who empowers us. And then we have another goal that's, that's really just to come up with an area that we want to grow in and then come up with a plan to do that and then talk with someone else in the church, a trusted person in the church, um, at least once a quarter about that goal and say, hey, here's how I'm doing, here's how I'm progressing. Why? So we don't forget that God has growth for us and that he intends for us to grow in him.
Then, we, then our, that our last goal that we have as a church is, is, is meant to remind us of the good news of the gospel ourselves by, by going into our neighborhood and prayerfully saying, hey God, who would you have for me to share the gospel with? Who would you have for me to build relationships with so that I can be deliberate and hopefully share a reason for the hope that lies within me? And so we, our, our goal is at least once a quarter to be out in the neighborhoods that you're in now, why all these things? Why do we have goals? Why do we, why do we have practices like this? It's so that we don't forget the Lord, so that we don't forget all of his benefits, so that we stay close to him. Because our hearts are easily drifting. We want to keep his words close to us because his words are life. I love reading Psalm 119. It's, it's one of my favorite songs. It's, it's very long, but it's great because it extols all of the goodness of God's word. And it extols all of the, the, the beauty of God's covenant and his commands and how his words are life to us. And, and far from being restrictive in intent, God's words and his commands, they're meant to bring freedom. But sometimes we think that God's commands, you ever feel this way? We think that God's commands are meant to restrict us. And, and that's actually not the case at all. It's the reverse. God's commands are not meant to, they're meant to restrict us from evil, but they're, they're meant to actually give us freedom in him. They're meant to give us joy. Sometimes we can think God's commands are, are meant to keep us from being happy, to keep good things from us. And God says, no, my commands are actually so you might enjoy what's truly good because you don't know on your own. God's word is how we live. And Jesus went so far as to say that that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. But they forgot what we saw at the end of the passage in Deuteronomy 4 was, though God did not forget. The people forgot, and they easily went astray, but God did not forget. God is a merciful God. God didn't leave them. He didn't destroy them, although we see that how he shows mercy to them, can be difficult. They forgot, but God did not forget his covenant. God promised not to leave them, and God promised to be merciful to him, but, but how God shows his mercy, how God is faithful to his covenant, we see is that God does not allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin. He does not allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin, and, and that's true for us as well. He doesn't allow us to remain comfortable in our sin, in our forgetting. He doesn't allow us to be comfortable with that. If you're just going along in your life thinking everything's fine, everything's good, but you've, you're unconsciously or consciously leaving God behind. God won't allow you to stay there because he loves you. And sometimes how God shows mercy is by bringing discipline. You know, when, when at times there's somebody who's in danger from a bad person and they think that that person is going to come and do harm to them, then the police will take that person, the, the person who's in danger of being harmed by, say, the mafia or whoever that might be, and they'll put them into protective custody. And they're put into custody to help them, not because the police are being mean, they're protecting them. And sometimes they actually put them behind bars in a safe place where bad people can't get to them so that they can be protected, so that they can be cared for. It's restrictive and confining, but it's, it's for their good. The biggest need for God's people that we see in this passage is, is not to be delivered from an outside enemy necessarily. It was for them to be delivered from their own sins and their own idolatry. And because of that, so they were trapped and enslaved 
to false gods. And so what does God do? God, God brings them mercy by not allowing them to be comfortable in their sins. Look, look down at verse 8. He says, therefore, because the people were enslaved to the Baals, he says, therefore, in verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of, of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, and the people served him eight years. The people before that were clearly not concerned with what God thought. They clearly forgot God, and God wanted them to remember their need for him. And so, so God actually does something here that is, is, is uncomfortable for us to see. He sold them. It doesn't say that they sold themselves or that really it was this Kushan Rishathaim. He was the cause. No, God is the cause for them to be sold into slavery under him. And you might think, oh my goodness, why in the world did God do that? Because Ultimately, the people needed to be delivered from their blindness. They needed to be delivered from enslavement to sin. They needed to be delivered from idolatry. And God will do whatever it takes to not allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin. And you might think, wow, that's awfully hard. Well, yeah, because God loves them so much that he'll do whatever it takes in order to draw his people back to him. They probably had found the ways of Cain and the world around them appealing. Like so many today who, who kind of deconstructed their faith. They may have even claimed liberation. They were serving the Baals and the, the, Baals and the Asheroth. And they might have said, hey, we're free. But really they were, they were servants of them. They were slaves of these false gods. You know, it's like the prodigal son when, when he left his father's house thinking he would find freedom and happiness and joy and in, in the pleasures of the world, all he found was enslavement, ugliness, sin. And at the end, there's this picture where he is cleaning the slop in, in his father's pig pens. And, 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 and he's, he's, think, I mean, he's cleaning his slop in a, in a pig pen, and he thinks about the fact that his, his father's servants have, have far more to eat, that, his, that, that all that's in his father's household have far more to eat than that, and he's hungry. And it's his hunger that drives him back to the father. God, God will not allow his people to remain comfortable in their sin, and he'll, he'll bring them to the place where they see their need, they see their hunger for him, they see their need for deliverance. The people of Israel have forgotten God. They served idols. So God goes after them. He pursues them. In his righteous anger, he sells them to the king of Mesopotamia. And, and this is just, not just a simple retelling of natural causes. No, this is saying God sold. The Lord did. Yahweh. And it wasn't because he was being mean. No. God has a jealous anger that it's not good for us to go after other gods. It's, it's not good for us to forget the Lord. It's actually the worst thing for us because God has goodness in himself. God did this in order to get them to remember, to get them to turn to him, to see their need, to see that they were helpless on their own. And sometimes um, circumstances function like that in our lives. God brings circumstances into our lives that are too difficult for us. Why? To cause us to remember him, to make us be hungry for him, to teach us to cry out to him. God does this to get them to see their need, that they're helpless on our own, and that God is their only source of help. And God is truly what they need. God did this because he loved them, and he didn't want them to be given over to worship of idols. They, they thought these idols would, would give them what they wanted, give them what they needed. 
what they needed was really God himself. I'd like the quote that Dale Ralph Davies has about this passage. He says, steadfast love pursues them in their iniquity and is not above inflicting misery in order to awaken them. The burning anger of Yahweh is certainly no picnic, but it may be the only sign of hope for God's people, even though they may be yet unaware of the fact. You see, God refuses to allow his people to be comfortable in their sin and idolatry because he loves them. He refuses to let us be comfortable. He refuses to let us forget. He refuses to let us keep hanging on to the idols in our lives. And sometimes he, when he rips open our hands, it's painful because he wants to remove the idols, those things that we grasp on so strongly that we think will give us our happiness and joy and what we need. And God says no. And sometimes the pain we experience is because we're holding on to those idols so tightly. God's discipline was always meant to be formative and restorative. That's what he tells us in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we might share in his holiness. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. It's, it's, God's discipline is always meant to draw us back to him. And that's, that's what we see in this passage here. They forgot. They did evil. They followed after idols. They actually started becoming slave to them. They were, became servants of these idols. And God rescues them by, by making it so that they, they need him. And then they cry out to God. God's discipline actually is effective. It gets them to the place of realizing they're desperate without him. They need him. That's what his discipline is meant to make us see. That we're desperate without God. We need God. Do you you realize that? Do you realize your need for God? You know, where are you tempted to forget? Where are you tempted to wander? Where are you tempted to feel like, I don't really need that. Those commands aren't important. God doesn't really have life for me. Where Where... Are you tempted to become comfortable in your sin? God lovingly brings discipline to turn his people back. And we see in this passage, it bore fruit. They cried out. And so the the third truth that we discover in this little package of of a passage here really is that, that God's merciful when his people cry out to him. He was merciful in his discipline, even though it was a hard mercy. But then God relents and he's merciful in his compassion when his people cry out to him look in, in verse 9 but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord the Lord raised up a deliverer so this is all about God they cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up a deliverer back when I was a child sometimes when my parents would discipline me they would, they would say something that I found at the time very unhelpful they would say this hurts me more than it hurts you I don't know if that's true I don't know, but I think I got what they meant, but I did not at the time because I'm like, oh, really? Well, like, let me have the switch then, okay? 
Like, you turn around and let me, like, you'll see who this hurts more. It's what I wanted to say to them. That's what I felt, and sometimes I probably did say that, and that got me into more trouble, right? Like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm like, I doubt it. This hurts a lot. And that's how we can feel. And, and yet, I think what my parents were after is the fact that they weren't disciplining me because it brought some kind of twisted pleasure to them by bringing me pain or keeping good things from me. No, that discipline was meant to be formative, and they didn't enjoy that. They didn't like that. Now, as a parent, I can understand a fraction of that because when, when I have had times when our, parent, our kids were younger and I had to, to give them consequences for disobedience and consequences for sin, I was trying to drive them to see that, that sin always brings consequence and that yet God has provided a way of escape and a savior. And I wanted them to, to see their need for God and then also to see that God provided a deliverer. And so the, the, the goal was formative, but I really didn't enjoy I've never enjoyed disciplining my kids. I've never thought, oh yeah, now this is going to like, uh, finally I'm going to discipline them. So I think I understood, and I think that part is really we see the heart of God. God's discipline is not vindictive. It's not because he somehow enjoys making things difficult. No, it's, it's meant to be formative. It's meant to be restorative. It's meant to show mercy. Because the worst thing for us, the worst thing for God's people, is that we be left to go our own way. Because if we're left to go our own way, we go to hell. But God's merciful. As people cry out. Now this isn't a cry of repentance necessarily. This is just saying, Lord, this is too much. God, we need you. But it's that simple cry of the heart that he responds to. You know, sometimes we don't fully get our need for deliverance, but we just cry out to God. I love this, this picture of this simple cry. They cried out to the Lord. They didn't have to do things. They didn't perform they may not have even repented fully here. They didn't fully get it. But they cry out to the Lord, and the Lord is merciful when his people cry out to him, and he raised up the deliverer. I, I, I love how in, in Acts 2, when the apostles are preaching, and they say, they say something really that's key for us too as well. In Acts 2, 21, it says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, everyone who cries out to the name of the Lord, will be saved. Now you have to ask yourself, is it because these people deserved it? Clearly not. They, they had gone their own way, forgotten God, they'd served idols, they'd done what's evil, and they cry out, but they're not even repentant here. They don't deserve it. But this just highlights the sheer grace that God has towards those who are completely undeserving who cry out to him, not because they earn it, not because they deserve it, but because God's a merciful God who shows mercy to all who cry out to him. This passage is meant to, to make us wonder at the grace of God, to wonder at why would God be gracious to, to, to show mercy to those who don't deserve it, to those who had forgotten him, had gone away. What they deserved was actually God to carry out the covenant fully and to obliterate them, but, but he doesn't. It's meant for us to reflect on the fact that, that we don't deserve God's mercy. There's nothing in us that's earned God's favor. We've never been completely perfect as the law requires. We've, we've, we've never fully obeyed. 
We continuously, even as believers in Jesus Christ, we continuously forget his commands. We continually, we're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I love that song, right? Prone to leave the God I love, and yet God in his grace and his mercy, he pours out his grace. He pours out his mercy on all those who cry out to him. And what does he do? How does he do that? He does that through a deliverer. Notice what it says. It says, he raised up a deliverer. Not a judge. Yes, he's a judge, but it says he raised up what? A deliverer, a savior. It's the same word. can be used as either deliverer or savior. So God raised up Othniel to be a deliverer who saves. Why? Because God's people need a deliverer who saves. And he's the cause for the savior or deliverer. And he's the one who, who delivers people through his deliverer. He's the one who saves them. In this case, the, the, the deliverer was none other than Othniel, the one we saw back in chapter 1. It's the same Othniel. He had, he had bold faith in God's promise. He responded to Caleb's challenge to, to go and, and capture the city of Kiriath-Saphir. And, and, uh, and Caleb said, whoever does that, I'm going to give my daughter. And so Othniel's brave. He's bold. He has faith. He goes and he captures the city. He's given Caleb's daughter but here, we don't see those qualifications listed at all. The only two qualifications you see listed here for Othniel are he was raised up by the Lord. And he was empowered by the Spirit of God. He was raised up by the Lord and he was empowered by the Spirit of God. And God shows mercy to his people through raising up a deliverer for them to save them. They'd become enslaved. They forgot God. God didn't allow his people to remain there, to remain comfortable in their sin. He was merciful as people cried out to him. And, and the fourth little treasure that we find when we open up this passage is, is that this little geocache of passages is that God brings deliverance and rest to his people through his deliverer. God brings deliverance and rest to his people through his deliverer. Look in, look in verse 10. It says, the spirit of the Lord was upon him. God raised him up. He put his spirit on him. That that's how God, that's how God's people always conquer. It's not by might, it's not by power. In Zechariah 4, 6, he says to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. It wasn't Othniel's greatness, it was by his spirit. By the Holy Spirit, he went out to the war. And it says, look in, look in, in verse 10, the, halfway down in verse 10, it says, the Lord gave the king and by the way, that king there, that name is a derogatory name that the captives probably gave to him. And that means um, the, the one from Cush who was doubly wicked. The doubly wicked king the Lord gave into the hand of Othniel. And his hand prevailed over this doubly wicked king. And through it all, God is the one who's prevailing. God sells them into the doubly evil king's hands. And God raised up Othniel to deliver them. And then God gives this doubly wicked king into Othniel's hand. What's it, what are we seeing here? That Yahweh is the Lord of history. God is the one who brings deliverance. He's the one who raises up deliver, his deliverer. He's the one who gives us his deliverance. And look in verse 11. We discover that God brings rest through his deliverer. God brings rest through his deliverer. This is so. Why? Because God raised up. Because God gave so the land had rest for 40 years. It's a, it's a sign of a complete generation. I'm not sure if it's exactly that or not, but it's, it's a real number, but it's also meant to show completeness, fullness. God gave them complete and full rest. 
But then there's this little appendix added. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And that's bad news because if you know the cycles of judges, whenever a judge dies, whenever their deliverer goes away, they quickly turn to their sense. But God brings rest through his deliverer. We're meant to see that. We're meant to actually hope for that. We're meant to hope for a deliverer who rescues us from the enemy. We're meant to hope for a deliverer who conquers. We're meant to hope for a deliverer who brings rest in a fullness of rest. The land back then, they had, they had calm. They had undisturbed still and peace. They had rest from war. They had peace for 40 years because God gave this doubly wicked king into Othniel's hand. They had rest because that's what God brings through his deliverer. They had rest because they cried out to him and God raised up a deliverer. Rest was the promise of God. But it didn't come through the people's obedience It didn't come through their faithfulness. Rest came through the deliverer. Rest came through the one who God raised up. And God's rest is is full and is generous. When the land had had relative rest from war and and has peace, it's it's God's kindness. And and that was meant to, to show them God's kindness and lead them to gratitude and to living for God. We'll see the next verse. They they didn't do that. That's, that's God's kindness to us. If we, if we ever experience periods of rest in our land, that's God's mercy. It's his kindness. And that's why we're actually called to pray for the leaders. Is where we're called to pray for kings, that we might have rest in the land, that it might be good, because that's a good thing that God brings. But that's not the ultimate rest we hope for. That's not the ultimate rest we're longing for. God's people need an, an ultimate rest that will last forever. Their rest only lasted 40 years. This passage contains a lot of joy when we open it and we see what it's teaching us. That It's showing us that God's people need a deliverer from themselves. And in the New Testament, we know that, that God has actually provided a deliverer from ourselves. He's provided Jesus to deliver us from our sins because we were trapped in our sin. We were serving false gods. We were unable to deliver ourselves. We had given ourselves over to enslavement to sin. And so so God raised up a deliverer. He raised up Christ that he always purposed since the beginning of time to raise Christ up, to deliver us from our sins, to conquer our sins, to live a perfect life, to give us all of his righteousness, to make us alive. He made us alive when we were dead in sins. Jesus is the last in the line of Judah. Othniel here, he's actually the first in the line of Judah, the first deliverer in the line of Judah. And he was somewhat perfect. He was flawless in a sense. But really the true perfect deliverer is Christ, the last in the line of Judah. He's defeated Satan, the most evil one, the doubly evil one. He's rescued us from enslavement. He's He's conquered our sins and God raised him up. In Acts 2.32 it says, this Jesus God raised up. His name is Jesus because he'll deliver those people from their sins. This Jesus, this deliverer who saves people from their sins, God raised up and of that we're all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus you crucified. God has raised up a deliverer. Are you trusting in him? Are you trusting in him? Are you remembering him? Ultimately, are you resting in him? We have, we have rest in the victory of Jesus. And I love what Jesus told us, tells us in Matthew 11. He says, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not rest in yourself, but rest in the deliverer. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Even if you forget, even if you've forgotten, God doesn't forget. He's merciful. If you're experiencing the discipline of the Lord, that's because he loves you. He's not allowing you to be enslaved. God mercifully disciplines. He's faithful to never leave us. He's faithful to his covenant through Jesus Christ. And the deliverer who we need is Jesus, whose God has raised up both, both literally and figuratively and is being raised up by God. God delivered, God saved, and he's liberated all who trust in him. And I love the, the picture of the, the last deliverer. You know, Othniel was given a bride as a reward and Christ, the ultimate deliverer, has been given the church, the bride, as his reward by God. Where Othniel went out and prevailed Jesus has ultimately prevailed. And God has given him power and dominion and the name above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And our ultimate deliverer was given the spirit and then he goes and gives us that same spirit. And, and unlike Othniel, this is not temporary Jesus' deliverance is forever because now he lives forever. So what's God calling us to do? He's calling us to return to him, to remember him continually, to trust in him, and to find our rest in him alone. Amen? Let's pray and have the band go ahead and come up and we'll sing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your small treasure that's hidden in plain sight. Lord, may we See the joy contained in your word, Lord, of, of remembering you, seeing your mercy, seeing your deliverance, seeing your grace, Lord. May we be in all of that personally, Lord, and may we be inspired to remember you even more and to look to our deliverer, to trust in our deliverer, and to rest in him. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.